going to read this morning from uh, the third chapter of Matthew. A version of this is, is also found in Luke, which to a certain extent indicates that this is important, that there's a reason for us to hear this message. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah when he said, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. But people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, and they confessed their sins. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't, don't you dare think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and will be thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water. But after me comes one who is much more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. May God bless the reading and hearing of those very gentle words. (laughs) Gentle, very gentle. People really, honestly, are predictable. At least in some ways, people are predictable. People, people want to feel good, which makes sense, right? Who, who doesn't want to feel good? Who, who doesn't want to feel better from one day to the next? I've always thought that that's why people, uh, a broad base of people like to listen to Joel Osteen, out of Houston, Texas. 
Joel's a genius. He, he almost never makes anybody feel bad. He smiles a lot. His hair is perfect. He tells a few jokes. He encourages people to look in the mirror and tell themselves how great they are. He doesn't talk about God a lot. He mentions God a little bit kind of here and there. You know, he's, he's, he's like a southern version of the old Saturday Night Live skit. Gosh darn it, I'm smart enough. Remember that one? I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and people like me. <laughs> well, it's funny in the second Sunday in Advent, it's like a, it's a, it's a huge distance from Joel Osteen. We have this encounter every year on this particular Sunday with John the Baptist. John, I think, was a little bit like Martin Luther, the historical figure who was responsible for the Protestant Reformation. Luther was very critical of the church and very critical of Christians. He once wrote after a visit to a rural parish Although the people are supposed to be Christian and they are baptized and receive the Holy Sacrament once a week, they don't know the Lord's Prayer, they don't know the Ten Commandments or any of the creeds that might ground their spiritual lives. And then he goes on to say, they live as if they are pigs and irrational beasts. And now that the gospel has been restored, they have mastered the fine art of abusing God's gift of free will. Now, who would want to come to church and hear that? (laughs) Pigs. Irrational beasts. And John really was trained at the same school. He's a full-blown eccentric. He yells at the congregation. He calls them names. And he seems to preach a sermon familiar to those of us who grew up in the South. Right? Get right or go to hell. Turn or burn is the way we used to hear it. He's like a street preacher. The ones you've heard on 42nd Street. He's been out of the trenches a little too long. He's scary. He's unpredictable. He doesn't care about whom he offends. His emotional IQ is very low. One theologian called John the Baptist the Doberman Pincher of the Gospel. That's kind of cool. The Doberman Pincher of the Gospel. And that... That statement is interesting because what what does gospel mean? It's supposed to mean, it's literally translated as good news. The Doberman Pincher of good news. Hmm. So one of the questions for us is how does John's message actually present or translate into good news? And what is he saying to us that we could interpret and take away as good, you know, as helpful, as useful? 
as pointing us in a better direction. So as I, as I sat with this text this week and sort of mused on it, I, I, I really felt like the text spoke to me. I really did. And I felt like it, it gave me and hopefully us some clues as to what's going on here. Because John is actually talking to an audience of people who would assume that they're good people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would have assumed that they were good people. They appear to be good church-going people. They appear to be good citizens. Mostly they do what they're supposed to do. So, so what's the problem? What, what is the problem? What is John the Baptist actually saying to them? And in John's eyes, there's a singular problem. They've lost their heart. They, they have lost their connection to their heart. They, they have a lot of knowledge about faith, but they are not living from the heart. Which is to say there's a gulf between what they know and how they live their lives. Which is to say that their lives are marked by hypocrisy. And they don't even know it. That's the way hypocrisy works. You don't know it. Reminds me of a black preacher that I heard some 40 years ago in Harlem. And there was a sort of community meeting and he was talking to a young man who was calling into question the credibility of the church because of its hypocrisy. And that particular young man was calling out religious types for their failure to practice what they preach. And this old guy, he, he listened very intently. And then he paused, a long pregnant pause after the young man was finished. And he said, I, I hear you. And I really, really sympathize with you. It is disappointing that us religious types aren't more convincing. However, he says, you've actually missed the primary point of the Christian faith. The point is for all of us to look in the mirror and find the courage to be as honest as we possibly can about our own hypocrisy. Because let me tell you, he says, it is so much easier to see somebody else's hypocrisy than it is to see your own. And then he says, why don't you come to church on Sunday? And why don't you sit down and join the community of hypocrites? All of whom are trying to bridge the gap between what we know, what we say we believe, and how we're supposed to live our lives. And he wasn't quite finished. 
He told a story then, and it's a story that I've told before, but it was a story about how hard it is, how hard it is to live out our faith. And it's a famous story about Clarence Jordan from Georgia. And Clarence was a, a Baptist preacher. Bon Bon, you okay? You sure? So again, he's, he's telling this story about how hard it is to be integrated. Integration, right? Between what we say we believe and how we live. And Clarence had actually been to seminary and he had been deeply convicted that the gospel treats everyone the same. So he went about creating a farm in Georgia called Koinonia Farm. And he did this widespread agricultural training. And it was a community where everyone pooled their resources. Everybody was treated the same. It taught farmers, black and white, rich and poor, how to live together. So at one point, the farm was being threatened by the KKK. The farm stand had twice been burned to the ground. And Clarence decided he was going to go to his brother, who was a very influential lawyer in the closest town. And he asked his brother very directly, he said, will you please stand up? Will you confront the leadership of the Ku Klux Klan? Will you use your influence to do something? And then he reminded his brother that they had both been baptized at the same time in the same church and they had both denounced evil. And you know what his brother said? His brother said, you can only take Christianity so far. He said to Clarence, I'm so sorry, but I cannot and I will not put my family in harm's way. And Clarence responded back to him, well then, Robert, you need to go back to the church where we were baptized. You need to tell them that you've lost your heart, that you didn't mean what you said, that you would denounce evil in the world. Hypocrisy is like this big word, right? Kind of scary. Sounds very judgmental. But it's all around us. It's all around us. And it's inside of each one of us. I think about my own life. I think about how I stand up so often and I, I, I talk about the power of unconditional love. And I talk about the power of forgiveness and I, and I talk about the power of generosity. 
Because I believe that those things are incredibly important. I believe that those things practiced would change the world that we live in. That's what I believe. And I forget. I forget every single day. And I turn those things into something circumstantial. And I turn those things into something short-lived. It's like I've almost forgotten about George Floyd. I've forgotten about Black Lives Matter. I don't really spend much time worrying about climate change. That's God's creation. That's the thing that sustains us. That's the thing that we were asked to be good stewards of, to care for deeply. So I can't tell you how glad I am that John the Baptist shows up on the second Sunday of Advent. I I can't tell you how glad I am. Inviting me and I hope all of us to stay closer to our hearts, to bridge the gap between the things we say are of fundamental importance that might change the world So I want to wind down the sermon by talking for just a minute about the word repentance. And again, that's a word that sometimes comes off as sort of scary and ugly and judgmental and, you know, all the things we mentioned earlier. It also sort of comes off in a very personal way that repentance means each one of us is supposed to stand up and say just how sorry we are and how we're never going to do something again, even though we're likely to do it again. So the repentance has has so often been this thing that we think makes us feel like bad people. But actually, that's not what repentance is. About a decade ago, two scholars, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, wrote a book called The First Christmas. And they spent a whole bunch of time studying the word and the the concept of repentance. And they pointed out that in the Old Testament, the verb is deeply shaped by the Jewish experience of exile. And so to repent means for us to return from exile. To return from alienation and estrangement and distance from God. To repent is to come back and to come closer to the presence of God. So Advent is really about that, right? This isn't about some threat to our fragile sense of self. It's about an invitation. Come home is what repentance means.
Come home. Come closer. Come closer to yourself. Come closer to your deepest convictions. Come closer to the presence of God that has this big vision for our lives. What a great message. Right? Great message. Invitation. You don't think that's a good message for all the young people who are in despair? You don't think that's a good message? That's a fantastic message. That your despair is temporary. That change is possible. You don't think that's a good message for all of us who look out at politics and polarization and think nothing's going to change? That's not what John the Baptist says. He says change is really possible. Stand up. Be counted. Get closer to your heart again. And what does it look like, this kind of repentance? I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be different for each one of us in this Advent season. It's going to look a little different for each one of us who is trying to draw again closer to the presence of God and the person maybe that God created us to be. But I'm going to tell you briefly about, this is, I promise this is the end. <laughs> I wrote about this in the e-blast, and this is what I think repentance actually looks like. I was in New Haven on Friday, and I was hanging out with a really close friend of mine named Mark Rollins. And we went to a little coffee shop, and we're standing at the front. I'm speeding up because some of you have read it. I'm standing at the counter, and the woman was a little bit flustered, but she got us our oatmeal and our avocado toast. And the line's growing behind us. And Mark is like, stay calm. Everything's okay. They give us the oatmeal. They give us the avocado toast. And Mark hands her $100. And he says, pay for everybody in line. Pay until the money runs out. And please, please tell them to have a blessed day. And then we went and sat in the corner over there, and I watched. I watched. And I watched young and old. I, I watched white, and I watched people of color. I watched people from the construction site, from across the street. I watched a guy in a dress. And almost without exception, there was more joy in that room. And almost without exception, there was a smile on every face. And it felt to me like home. It felt to me like the kingdom of heaven, which is nothing more than close proximity to the presence of God. That's what it felt like.
every single one of us can create that. More of that. Repent. Come home. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thanks be to God.